Amen. Let's pray one more time, shall we? Father, as we take our Bibles, we ask that your Holy Spirit will minister to your church through the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to do a three-week series from Ephesians chapter 5, launching from Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, illustrating each concept uh, that we um, study uh, with a story or the teaching ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. My brother and I, I have two brothers. One has been in heaven for a little over 30 years, almost 34 years. I have an older brother who's been in Kalamazoo, Michigan for longer than that. And my older brother's name is Philip. And he and I started doing something this year that we hadn't done much before. But uh, when a certain kind of occasion takes place and we can snap a picture of it, we'll just take a picture and shoot it to one another so we kind of know what's happening right then. And this past Wednesday on New Year's Day afternoon, uh, my phone uh, popped and I looked down and I had a picture texted in from Phil. And it was just a picture, there were no words, just a picture of a time clock computerized um, machine where you slide your card for your time, and it was my brother's hand and his time card ready to slide, and then there was another picture with it, and it was a long hallway, and at the end of the hallway were two double doors. My brother, after 33 years with the Kalamazoo United States Postal Service, was sliding his time card for the very last time and walking out, retired, completely done, and he was so happy, so happy. What a great occasion. I don't know what happened to you this past year. Uh, one of the occasions that I took a picture of my hand and an envelope was mailing my, our final house payment, and I sent him a picture of that. It actually happened to be the same day that he sent me a picture of his, uh, that's God's grace. Um, it, it's all God's grace, isn't it? Um, he sent me a picture of um, his hand that same day with an envelope mailing, this was a couple months ago this fall, mailing his paperwork in so that his retirement could be finaled here and uh, on, on the first day of the new year. Uh, well, I don't know what all happened to you in 2019, and we don't know what all is going to happen in 2020, but our challenge as a church today, isn't it, as we begin a new year, is to take a few Sundays and to think about how we're going to live in the year ahead. I've called it a vision check. You'll see where I got this if you'll look down in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. It's as though I've invited the Apostle Paul to lecture today or to speak. And if the Apostle Paul were to speak to us on this strategic Sunday, first Sunday of a new year, kind of a new beginning, 2020, that's hard to get your mind used to, the Apostle Paul might say these words right here, 5.15 of Ephesians, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Those three verses are what I want us to react to each of the next two Sundays after this. These three Sundays, first three Sundays of January, I want us to read this text as we begin our sermon every week today and the next two Sundays, and I want us to react to what pops off the page. Let's take just a minute and understand a little bit of what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. It's a loaded passage. Here's where we get our sermon title today. Look carefully. It's a vision check for what we're seeing in 2020. Look carefully then how you walk. Let's make sure we understand. Some of you don't realize maybe that that word walk is a little bit Pauline. Uh, He uses it more than anybody else. Um, The Apostle Paul to describe the Christian life, the Christian walk. Some of you walk on treadmills or you walk on tracks or you walk at the school, whatever. He's not talking about your physical walk per se. He's talking about as we walk through life, how are we living our lives? So be careful. Look, he says, look carefully then how you live your life. You walk not as, look at the next word, unwise, but as wise. There's a terms of contrast, right? Unwise versus wise. It is possible to live unwisely, and it is possible to live with wisdom, a spirit of wisdom. He goes on to say, making the best use of time. We're chronological people, aren't we? We track our birthdays, We track the year. It means something that it's 2020. We've been keeping track of time. I don't have it with me this morning. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. But in one of my uh, Bibles that I was preaching out of when I was a youth pastor, and then when I came to fellowship 24 years ago, it was an NIV student Bible, actually. And I liked the way that Bible handled. In the back pages, you know where you have those blank pages where you write stuff? at least I do, I had taken on a computer and I had printed out 2020. I don't remember when. It was over 25 years ago. I had printed 2020 in big block letters, and then I took clear plastic strapping tape, and I taped it to the back because I was just pondering uh, what it meant to be at the year 2020. And at that time, I was probably 38 years old or something. The year 2020 represents the year I would turn 60. And it meant you better pay attention, boy, because you're going to be an old man soon. <laughs> we, we watch time, don't we? we? We give calendars for Christmas presents. And we have calendars in our phones, and we watch the time. Paul says, look carefully how you live or walk Not as unwise, but as wise. There's terms of contrast. Making the best use of time, his motivation is because the days are evil. That's a reference to the importance of living wisely, a godly life in Christ Jesus, to be wise in godless days. But it's also, I think, a reference to the last days. The the fact that in the end times, things will get worse and worse. And so time is ticking, and you're not going to live forever. Therefore, he says then in verse 17, do not be foolish. And that makes me think of the word unwise that he started out with in verse 15. Do not be unwise and do not be foolish. He's even getting stronger, isn't he? To be unwise isn't as strong of a word as to be foolish. 
To be unwise could be foolish, but not necessarily. It's just less than wise. But to be foolish, it is possible to be a fool. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it is, this is the English Standard ESV that I'm using. It's translated, look carefully then how you walk. In the New American Standard, it says, be careful how you walk. Be careful. It doesn't talk about looking. The NIV that I used to preach out of says, be very careful. It adds the word very to what the the NAS translated. Be very careful then how you live. So where did the ESV get the idea of this idea of looking? Look, watch out. And it's interesting in the original Greek where it's translated be careful, be very careful in NAS and NIV, the word be, that little two-letter English word be in our Bibles, in some of your Bibles, in the original Greek language has the idea of look or observe. Be this, look and observe, it's, it's connected. And so the ESV translated it more literally there to look how you live. Watch out. Check your vision. I think this is appropriate for me in my 60th year for us as a church. How are we living? Are we effective? What popped off the page to me this first Sunday, and I really don't know yet what's going to pop off the page the next two Sundays, is Paul's instruction to not be unwise or foolish. And so that made me think of a man that God looked at and said, you're a fool. Paul says, don't be foolish. God looked at a man and said, you're a fool. It's from a story that Jesus told. It's in Luke's gospel in chapter 12. And I invite you to turn there and now position your notes if you like to use them for a listening guide. But in Luke's gospel in chapter 12, we have recorded by Luke the historian, uh, a a wonderful short story that our Lord told. His stories are are called parables. They are illustrations of truth told in a common setting so that we can think about spiritual realities. You're supposed to ponder these. You're supposed to remember this story the rest of the week, by the way. You're supposed to let the Holy Spirit bring it back to your mind. You're supposed to meditate on our Lord's parables, and and you're supposed to say to yourself, hmm, who am I in this story? What is the point of the story? Parables usually have one main point, but usually you can fit yourself into a parable. You can kind of identify with the characters. Let's see what the context is of the story. It's our Lord and a crowd of people, and someone shouts out. We don't know who it is, but a man shouts out. Verse 13, Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Clearly, he's upset. Under Old Testament Levitical law, instruction in Deuteronomy, the oldest son inherited the father's estate and property. I don't know that it was so that he could have it and nobody else in the family could but it was a way of preserving what had been worked for and built upon. And the oldest son then took the father's place. And I would assume he then had the responsibility of dividing out the property appropriately to the heirs. 
technically and legally, he could keep it all for himself. He got everything. The other siblings got nothing. That really stinks. Some of you have been there. And it's very difficult. You even end up in court. It's shameful. And so this man yells out to the Lord, Teacher, tell my brother. It was common for rabbis to help solve some of these lesser civil suits. You notice, um, we don't know any other details than that, whether he, he certainly felt shortchanged. But Jesus almost gives a snippy response. That's what he says. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Almost get the feeling there. Why should I care about your business? It was not, like I said, inappropriate or uncommon. I think what our Lord is saying is, look, there's more important things to think about than this. Our Lord goes on to make a statement and then tell a story and it all has to do with the answer, part of the answer to the man with the question about the inheritance. So our Lord is listening and our Lord does care. Look what he makes now as a statement. He says to them, so the man asks the question. He answers the man by saying, who made me your arbitrator? Then he says to the crowd again, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Isn't that interesting? It's a warning about covetousness. I think we recognize in ourselves a propensity to enjoy things and to want possessions. We might not think of ourselves as covetous. That word has a couple different meanings to it. The idea there of covetousness often is weighted with, you have something I want. I'm coveting something you have, and it's inappropriate. I don't, I'm not rejoicing with you for what you have. I'm coveting what you, I wish I had what you had, meaning I don't care whether you have it. I just really want it. It's a sin. It also has the idea of a more, more, more. This covetous lifestyle, somebody afflicted with a covetous lifestyle is that they see things, they want things, and they are never satisfied like a man who's thirsty, who drinks salt water to, to satisfy his thirst, and as a result, he just gets more thirsty, so he drinks more salt water, and he just gets more thirsty, and he just wants more, 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 and he's only thirst all the more thirsty. He's not satisfying his thirst, and it's that kind of an idea. I want more. I want more. I want more. You know, this is a really appropriate passage for Americans. By the way, it's not wrong to be an American. You know that. And we live in an incredibly affluent lifestyle, which creates a whole spectrum of issues in our lives related to spiritual things. But as a result of living in the kind of culture in which we live, and we make a lot of money, most of us, we can just have so many things. But it doesn't matter what you make. or It is innate to the human spirit, isn't it? To want to have more and to have things and to be comfortable and to want more, more, more. And so our Lord is speaking to the crowd about a core issue in our human makeup. And he goes on and he tells the story. And so in verse 16, he told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man, and I know this is familiar, and we've been here before in the last 24 years. And he told them a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, see, he's having a conversation with himself. You're tracking with this, right? He's talking to himself. Having a conversation with himself. We do, we all do it all the time. Might not be out loud. And I will say this to my soul Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Good plan. But God said to him, Here it is. Paul said, Do not be unwise, do not be foolish in the way you walk, the way you live, but be wise and know the will of God. And God looks at a man and says, you fool. That's incredible. You fool. This night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Remember, he's speaking to a crowd about covetousness, the desire for more, more, more. He tells a story about a man who is totally into self-satisfaction and immediate gratification. And he then ends with the punchline, when it's over and it will be over is the point. And there is a day of accountability. And this guy had no idea it was that night. Whose stuff is this going to be? What have you lived for? And he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, a contrast. Someone rich towards God or someone who's rich towards themselves. The, the passage is loaded and we'll not even scratch the surface, but I thought it would be important for us to clarify and make sure we understand what Jesus is not saying here, okay? First of all, Jesus is not saying that planning and productivity are bad. As the man's got a plan, right? And the man is incredibly productive, but he, it is not bad or wrong to do that. In fact, we have tremendous amount of input from Scripture. Uh, wisdom literature tells us that we need to plan ahead. We need to put, have storehouse. We have the model of Joseph in Egypt of old where he rescued Pharaoh and he had a dream and he stored up for seven good years. He stored up for the seven lean years. That's wisdom living, isn't it? Uh, we have uh, this, the, another parable of our Lord in the Olivet Discourse where he told the story of the men with the talents. The master went on a long journey. He distributed this money to his servants. One of them buries it. The others are productive. And the part of the whole point of the story is you have limited time till the master returns. You better be as productive as possible. So there's no merit in Scripture to the idea that somehow it is more spiritual to be poor than it is to be rich. That's not true, and that's not biblical. Okay? In fact, this man is doing what he's supposed to do. He has resources. He has, he has the capacity to produce. And if you have the capacity, the capacity to produce and you do not produce, that's waste. Proverbs says that one who wastes is akin or a brother to him who destroys. 
So to have a field with a capacity to create more productivity and to not do it is the same as having a field that you did plant and you burned it down. You see, one is wasting, the other is destroying, and they're kissing cousins. So there's more to be said on that topic, especially in our world today where at some level materialism is is the drive of our whole world, and on the other hand, it is despised by some. has a lot to do with our heart attitude and our motive, but make sure you don't read into the passage and think that Jesus is suggesting that somehow for him to have a plan ahead or for somehow for him to take his resources and be productive is wrong is exactly not true. Okay? Secondly, Jesus is not saying that personal wealth and gain or to be rich is wrong. It is not wrong to be rich. And in fact, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, and in February we'll renew our Hebrews series, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be in the faith hall of fame. These people are going to be held up as our models and our examples of spirituality. And some of them, when they lived, were some of the richest people on the entire planet. It's incredible. So we, it has a lot to do with attitude. So what is our Lord teaching here? Let's go to the story. Let's break it down. We know the story. We're not going to beat it to death. But the idea here is for us in our 2020 vision check, for us to look at four characteristics in this story of a spiritually short-sighted person. What are the characteristics of a person who is spiritually short-sighted? First of all, I would suggest that they are defined by a self-centered worldview. I altered that sentence after it was proofed, and I didn't catch. So take a little pen and mark out the N on Anne and make it A. They are defined by a self-centered worldview. You did notice in the story, didn't you, when we read, he said in verses 17 through 19, he said, this is what I will do. I have nowhere. I, me, my, I, I, Ten times in the English translation, he uses the personal pronoun I or my. There is no reference to other people. In the Greek, it's even stronger than that. In the original Greek, eight times the word for I is used and four times the word for my is used. And conversely or opposite, in the opposite reflection of that, standing out against that, is conversely, there is no indication of concern or responsibility towards others. That's part of the point of the story, I think. This guy is consumed with self at the expense of all others. No concern for others. Letter B, secondly, another characteristic of a spiritually short-sighted person is that they are focused upon their personal gain and their personal comfort. They are focused upon personal gain and comfort. Remember what he said in verse 19. Focus on verse 19 now. I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. You relax, eat, drink, be merry, party. Let's be comfortable. Let's take it easy. Conversely, there is no plan or desire to invest resources into people or projects outside of themselves. Somebody who is spiritually short-sighted will be a self-centered person who has no desire to invest in people or projects that are greater than themselves, that are outside of themselves. Thirdly, we see in our story, particularly focused on verse 19 now, 
that they are driven by a craving for immediate and temporal satisfactions. Let's do this. Everything is the here and now, a plan for immediate gratification in this lifetime. It's a short view, which conversely brings up the idea that there seems, at least in the story as it's told, no consideration of eternal things. There is no thought to the eternal, only to this physical world. No thought to the spiritual, to the invisible, to the eternal, always just this world right here, right now. Bigger barns, bigger fields, bigger granaries, greater opportunity to retire early, to relax, to eat, to drink, to be merry. It's pretty much a description of the drive of our culture. Fourthly, a spiritually short-sighted person will assume that life will be long. Notice in verse 19 yet again. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Uh, uh, Let's clarify. So when I was a kid, my dad in the 1969 Chevy Impala station wagon where all the seats would go down could fit 12 bushels of peaches in the back of that station wagon in southern Michigan, drive around the bottom of Lake Michigan, come to the south suburbs of Chicago and show up with a big grin on his face and say, we're going to can peaches. And I mean, blistering hot, no air conditioning in the kitchen and the boiling stoves and the extra burners and, and putting the peaches in the hot water so you slide the skins off and slicing them and putting them in, in quart jars with that beautiful syrup and beautiful halves of peaches. And we kids hated it. And we snarled and we growled and we made life miserable all day long as we canned 12 bushels of peaches. And in the middle of the winter, I would complain to my mother when she would say, go down in the crawl space and bring up a quart of peaches. I feel like peaches for dessert. And I would go down and say, I ate peaches and I ate this. And, I, and then I'd turn on the little light in the crawl space there. And my dad had built rows of shelves and it was absolutely beautiful. Grape juice and tomato juice and canned green beans and peaches and, and, and pickled watermelon rind. Why anybody invented that, I have no idea. <laughs> Dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of quart jars of preserves that my mother would labor over. That's not wrong to preserve for the future. How nice to open a quart of peaches and drink that syrup in the middle of February. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a man who's prepared for the future like Joseph did in Egypt of old with Pharaoh, as we've referenced. This is a man who fully expects that he has a long life to enjoy. That's what it's talking about. I will be prepared to take care of myself for my long life that I'm going to live. Conversely, there is a refusal almost in a person like this to face the brevity of life. Uh, Maybe a better word is the uncertainty of life. He has no uncertainty about his life. He knows he's going to live a long life. Last Sunday afternoon, Janet, with tears in her eyes, held up her phone on her Facebook page, and she said, "I I can't believe it. Steve Tegler died. Let me show you a picture here. Um, You recognize anybody in this picture? Um... This is 1981, 
And I'm on the far left with this gospel team that I traveled all summer out to California, New Mexico, all across the country in a different church or camp every night, every week. My dear friend Greg Alderman, who's in his pulpit preaching, well, he might be done by now, but um, he preached this morning at his church, First Baptist Church of Damascus, Virginia. If you're ever down there, go visit Greg. He's going to be our camp out speaker next Labor Day. Our team there, and then I'm on the left, the guy in between with his head taller than I, is Steve Tegler from Poundin Mill, Virginia. He was born in 1959. I was born in 1960. We had a great summer together. He's a deer hunter. He's a contractor. He lovingly shepherded for over 30 years, two little country churches in Pounding Mill area there. And last Saturday afternoon, he was out doing some scouting. The holidays coming. Family was coming in. Some of his family are missionaries returning home. They were going to have a deer hunt, and he was setting up for that. And there was his motorcycle, and there he was. His boy found him on the ground. He was gone. He had entered the presence of the Lord. Evidently, a heart attack instantly, 60 years old. And he was gone. And Janet and I have been all week long just kind of stunned by this. We haven't been close for the last few years. We were close early on. We always enjoyed seeing each other when we meet up at the Bible college. They had in that little church down there along the highway and pounding mill area and southern, rural, southwestern Virginia, about as southwest as you can get, five to 600 people showed up on New Year's Day this week in the middle of the day for a memorial service. They didn't even have a speaker. They, they just shared their hearts, and the deacons led it, and they played a 15-minute clip of their pastor preaching from the Sunday before Christmas on our Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. You know, just a reminder of the uncertainty and the brevity of life. Just can't get my head wrapped around that. We've been praying for his wife, Brenda, a precious lady. We went to Bible college together with these folks. But there's a spiritually short-sighted person. They are defined by a self-centered worldview. They do not care about others. They are focused upon personal comfort and gain, and they have no, uh, no care for anybody outside of themselves. They are driven by the immediate temporal. They have no vision of eternity, and they assume that life will be long. They refuse to face the brevity and uncertainty of life. The story then promotes a question. There's a question that pops out of the story to me. Does it you? Why then did God call this guy a fool? He never really says. It just when, when this man is held to account that night when he thought he was going to live a long time, and there he is before the Lord, God looks at him and says, you fool, you fool. Really, the short answer is because he wasted his life. It is possible to waste your life. Do you know that? But let's just think really quickly. Why did God call this man a fool? In verse 20, look what he says. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, there's obviously some things you are not thinking about that you ought to be thinking about. So therefore, you're a fool if you're not paying attention to the right stuff. First of all, I think it's clear that the absence of God in his heart, mind, and life make him a fool. He appears to be at the least a practical atheist. Now, we don't know anything about the guy. 
We don't know what his religious background is. We don't know if he's walked away from God. We don't know what he believes about in God. So philosophically, theologically, we don't know what he believes. But we do know that practically speaking, he lives like an atheist. And we also know that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 14.1 that it is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. So in a way, what difference does it make if philosophically or theologically you declare yourself an atheist or whether in a practical day-to-day lifestyle you live like an atheist? That there is no God and I'm not thinking about being accountable and I don't care what he thinks. I only care about myself. I think that's a main reason why God called him a fool because he rejected all thoughts of God. Secondly, the assumption of personal control over the events and timeline of his life make him a fool. I just illustrated this with Steve Tegler. This guy thought that he was in control of the timeline of his life. He never gave a thought that his life would be interrupted up short. Thirdly, the absolute lack of thought or preparation to stand before God makes him a fool. He lived his whole life, evidently, without ever giving a thought that he is going to stand before God and give an account of his life. I mean, that right there is a life-changing concept, isn't it? The fact that when my life ends, whenever that might be, that there is a day future that I will stand before the Lord and my works will be tried. As a believer in Christ, this is true. A non-believer in Christ, you can write down Revelation chapter 20 in your Bible and you can read about the great white throne judgment and you can read about when you will stand before God. And it is the most awful moment that anybody could ever exist in. But for believers in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about our works being tried as though with fire, that which is hay, wood, and stubble, that which is for no count for eternity, that which has nothing to do with anything that God is on God's agenda, but is only about my life and me and my and I. It's going to burn up. And it won't be gold, silver, and precious stones. This guy never thought about that. Fourthly, I think his accumulation of earthly possessions for little more than selfish gain makes him a fool. Why are you doing all this? Hey, Jenk, what you doing? I'm building bigger barns. Oh, that's great. Beautiful barns. Why are you doing it? So that I can relax. What a stupid reason to build a bigger barn. You know, under the point of being an atheist, and I can't remember if I already said this in this service or not, so I'm going to say it again. The idea there is that this man had productivity in his life at an incredible level. Because why? Because it rained on his good soil and the crops grew for years. He had four years, maybe five years, six years of great crops because God gave him good weather. He could have had four or five years of drought. It never occurred to him that he didn't control the weather. He just thought if he threw the seed in the ground, he would get a little bit richer. He didn't realize that God owns it all. He was a fool. Jesus goes on to give us the conclusion and the point of the story. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's that contrasting tension. There's the tension. Am I going to live for myself? Am I going to store up for self? Or am I going to lay up treasure in heaven? Am I going to live according to God's value system? The point of the story is, and I'm a little bit repetitious here probably, but let's just click them off. 
Isn't the point of the story then that it is incredibly short-sighted to live life laying up treasure only for ourselves? Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. So yesterday at the men and boys breakfast, we had a pretty neat thing that happened. We didn't have a normal speaker. We brought three old men to the platform, and I say that lovingly, men who are in their 70s. We had a chair right here, and Wayne McKenzie was sitting here, and we had a chair right here, and Woody Beto was sitting here. Both are 73 years old. Woody's been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And then right here was Rick Sales, the young buck. He's only 71. He's here in this service. And I told him ahead of time that I wasn't going to give them the questions, but that I was going to ask them questions about their lives, about what it meant to come to Christ, to know Christ, to grow in Christ, whether they had any regrets. If they could go back and do it over, what would they do differently? If they were 17 years old today, what would they recommend to a 17-year-old? What do, they, uh, do they have regrets? Wayne McKenzie, in, in talking about a defining moment in his life, talked about being in, a, in his late 30s in a deep, dark canyon of his life of depression. He was a believer, he said, but he wasn't committed to Christ. He wasn't living for the values of God's agenda. He said his family went to church and he got on his knees in his room and he cried out to God and he said, I'm done. I'm sick and tired of feeling this way. Of, and he said, Matthew 6.33 came to his mind. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And Wayne said it tripped in his life. He said the lights came on, and from that moment on, he's lived for Jesus Christ and nothing else. I said, um, and I, I say lovingly teasing the old men, but that when you're in your 70s, you're old. You're not young anymore. I said um, to Wayne, to Woody, to Rick, said, you're, you're in your 70s. You're not going to live much longer. Are you afraid to die? And Wayne said, no. Wayne said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, just, it's all about Jesus. It's not about his comfort, his life. It's a different agenda. It's a different worldview. And it is incredibly short-sighted to live life laying up treasures only for ourselves The point of the story is that our time and our effort and our resources in this life are meant to be driven by a God-focused value system. The point of the story is that there is clearly a day of accountability that should be highly motivational, a highly motivational incentive for understanding what God expects of my life. You can read about that in Romans chapter 14 as well. The fact that I'm going to stand before God and give an account should change everything about my life and my value system. So if you believe this, Paul said, remember our text is Ephesians 5 here, do not be unwise, but be wise. Know what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish. Be filled with the Spirit. And we've modeled for ourselves here the kind of man that God would look at and say, you're a fool. If you don't want to be that kind of person, you have to be ready for certain things. Are you ready to think biblically because to think biblically is countercultural? You will not be like the rest of your people around you at work or wherever you are. 
It is countercultural to think biblically. You will not do things the way the rest of the world does. You will not look exactly the way the rest of the world. You will not behave, and your value system will be like a bright shining light on you because you just won't do things the same way. You might give stuff away, and your buddies at work say, you, you gave it away? Why would you do that? You mean your sister got everything from your mom and dad's bank account when they died? Yeah, you didn't fight them? No, I didn't fight them. She can have it. She can live with it. I can live without it. It's not what I'm about. You see, we do things God's way. We think God's way. We don't fit into the rest of the world. Our minds are being transformed and renewed by the word of God. Thinking biblically is countercultural. Secondly, living for the eternal over the temporal is counterintuitive. So this isn't going to happen automatically, people. If you just get up and go and, all right, time to go to IHOP, get some pancakes, that's a good thing. You know, it's not wrong, not wrong at all. Go watch a little football, it's all good too. But if your life is about pancakes and IHOP and football, you're wasting your life. If that's what you're all about, if that's really what has value to you, and you never give thought to the eternal, you're always just living in this world, you've got issues. And it's counterintuitive to live outside of this world. We are physical beings. Yeah. We're physical beings, all right? And so we're very trapped in the physical. And so that's why we need to see the invisible rather than the material which is going to require 2020 spiritual vision this year. If you're going to see the spiritual this year more than the physical, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, that the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen. In the ESV, it uses the word temporal. The things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The NIV says more real, I think. That's hard for us to get a, a grip on, and it's not intuitive, and it's countercultural. You know, the number one thing, though, before we go, that you need to remember is that if you're Steve Tegler and God decides to stop your days, and in your, the plan of God's book is days are up, and you're ready to stand before the Lord, the most important thing is if you're identified with Jesus Christ for your salvation. Have you been to the cross? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? I don't know if you recognize the second song. While the cup was being served, Karen Sue played a rendition of What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the most important thing to stand before God is to have the blood of Jesus speak for you to a holy God. And you're identified with Christ. Are you saved today? Had a memorial service here Friday afternoon. It was a small group right here. Jeanette Nicholson's stepfather, Jesse Nicholson, stood and gave a little tribute to her grandfather. She's only known him all her life as her grandfather. And he was a, a born-again godly man. And with tears coming down her cheeks, she was thanking the Lord for a grandfather who left a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ for his grandchildren. I thought that was good. 
Because when you stand before the Lord, the only thing that matters is if you're identified with the blood of Christ. And then if you are in Christ, what matters is what you're doing with the rest of your life. How's your vision? 2020 vision check. Let's let the Spirit of God continue the message from here. Let's stand together in closing prayer. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. I'm going to linger down front here if you would like to talk about spiritual things, about living for eternity, about being saved, about having your sin forgiven. As the rest of the group leaves and chairs are stacked, please find your way down here, right here in front of the pulpit, and I'll be here. I'm happy to talk to you. The most important thing about you is if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're a blood-bought one, and you're ready for eternity, and then you're ready to live for eternity. Father, please help us as we live in this world that presses in upon us, and we have so many desirable, physical, short-term things. Help us to live and be driven by your agenda, not our own. May 2020 be a year of clear spiritual vision for Fellowship Bible Church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.